It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show someone that we have had on the show previously talking about vaccines and other related information. We have with us today on the show Dr. Byron Bridal, and he is here to talk about an article he authored in the conversation. It's called Five Factors That Could Dictate the Success or Failure of the COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout. Now, Dr. Byron Bridal is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. His research interests include developing a better understanding of how the immune system responds to viral infections, as well as designing immunotherapies for the treatment of cancers and infectious diseases. He is also passionate about teaching immunology and contributing to the training of Canada's next generation of researchers. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Byron Bridal back to the show. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be here. And like I said, pleasure to have you back and also to talk about your article, Five Factors That Could Dictate the Success or Failure of the COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout. I'm thinking this is probably something that's on a lot of people's minds in terms of now that we're in the throw of the vaccines rolling out. We hear so much about that across the country. There's so many questions around the vaccines, though, still that remain. Um, The long-term benefits, uh, will it it last? What about the variants that are happening with the mutations? Uh, So many questions are coming up now that we're in the throw of this. Um, In your article, of course, you also talk about herd immunity, and that's something we should talk about as well. So, how would you like to start that conversation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're right, David. There, there are a, a lot of questions, um, and, and some of these questions, interestingly, are because of the very unique um, timeline that we dealt with mm. when getting these mm-hmm. vaccines out to the public. So, uh, one of the things we actually that you and I actually talked about um, previously on your show was was this timeline. And uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting to point out is um, those of us who are who are asked to comment on the traditional timeline for the development of a vaccine, you know, had mentioned that that normally it takes several years, and and so uh, it's interesting. I've I've been questioned quite a bit about uh, therefore predicting that chances are that we would not have a vaccine in in less than a year. That probably wouldn't be possible. Uh, one thing to point out that's kind of interesting is. Uh, we haven't actually met the the um, uh, the goal with these vaccines yet in terms of the approval process. So, interestingly, it probably will take several years for these vaccines to meet the traditional uh, approval process by by Health Canada, um, and that's because there's just a minimum amount of time in which safety data, for example, has to be collected. So, the vaccine manufacturers and the health regulatory agencies have admitted, in fact, that. Uh, data collection will be continuing for another at least uh, two years, maybe another two and a half years. And then at that point, uh, the vaccines will be reevaluated. The data will, the, the, the cumulative data from the phase three testing will be evaluated carefully by the health regulatory agencies. And it will be at that time that they will determine whether or not they will uh, license these vaccines. So that's very important to keep in mind, right? Because that licensing process indeed takes several years. And, um, and, and what that means is, is we would normally have several years worth of data before a, a vaccine is licensed for use in, in people. So keep that in mind. This is very important for people to understand. The vaccines that are being uh, distributed right now in Canada are not uh, officially licensed by Health Canada. Instead, they have been approved for emergency use only. So that's very important mm. to keep in mind. 
And the reason okay, why that's important, David, is because it means, in fact, that these vaccines have been rolled out before the uh, before full licensure. And and this has happened in less than a year. And so that means there's some basic fundamental questions around these vaccines that have never existed before for historical vaccines. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure how many people realize that the difference between the licensing and approval and and the use of an emergency only is something else that you also talk about in your article is the effectiveness of the vaccines. Can you give us a, a sort of a sense of how vaccines just work for a basic, say, uh, flu vaccine? So what is the basic effectiveness level that we shoot for when we're trying to get, uh, you know, the yearly flu shot that we get. What is the effectiveness of the vaccine that we're getting in that case? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, David. So uh, with a flu vaccine, it's often um, the effectiveness is actually relatively low many years. Uh, And this is because the the influenza viruses mutate and change so much uh, throughout the year that we're really dealing with fundamentally new versions of the influenza virus each year. So in fact, mm-hmm. in some years, it, so it depends how much the virus has changed from year to year. But in some years, the effectiveness of the uh, annual flu vaccine can be as low as 50%. That, that would be, uh, it would be very difficult for us in Canada to achieve herd immunity uh, if, if that were the case with the COVID-19 vaccine, simply because it's estimated that we're going to need at least 60% of Canadians to be immune in order to stop the spread of this virus. So mm-hmm. the good news is that at least in, you know, based on the media releases, you know, and the data that is that we've seen so far, these COVID-19 vaccines do seem to be more effective. Um, in, in, in media releases, for example, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines have claimed to be 90, up to 95% effective. And what that means essentially, David, is, is what they did is in their trials is they had people volunteer, half the volunteers got the vaccine, half did not. And then they looked at, um, of the people then that naturally acquired COVID-19, what proportion were in the unvaccinated group, what proportion were in the vaccinated group. And so what this 95% effectiveness uh, suggests is that if you have the vaccine, you are 95% less likely to acquire uh, COVID-19. So in other words, between those two groups, of those that got the COVID-19, 95% of the cases were in the unvaccinated group, and only 5% of the cases were in the vaccinated group. So that's what it means. So that it's, it's talking about the chances of being protected. However, uh, what's interesting is that was in, in the, the clinical trial. And so one of the things um, that was of concern with the Pfizer vaccine is uh, they didn't publicly uh, disclose the fact that uh, they had excluded over 3,400 people that they uh, defined as being, ha- being suspected of having COVID-19, but it was unconfirmed. These were suspected but unconfirmed cases of COVID-19. We're not sure why so many were unconfirmed. So when they actually developed that uh, effectiveness data, it was based on only 170 cases of COVID-19 that had been confirmed with the, uh, the, the nasal swab and the PCR test. Um, and so it was interesting because in a non-peer-reviewed opinion article uh, or a letter that was published by the associate editor of the British Medical Journal, they went back and reevaluated the data, now understanding that there were uh, over 3,400 people with suspected COVID-19 that had been excluded. And their recalculation suggested that the effectiveness of the vaccine could be substantially lower, perhaps even uh, well under 50%. Now this is just speculation at this point, and and that, that this is this is the this is part of the problem, right? When we don't have 
the uh, the raw uh, data available from these studies available for scientific evaluation. Um, so we, we really don't know where exactly the, the level of effectiveness lies, but, uh, but the claim is 95%. And one of the reasons why this is important, uh, David, is because, uh, you know, very recently we just, uh, Canada just approved, again, for emergency use, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yep. And, and it's interesting you raise this issue of effectiveness because it has a uh, publicized uh, effectiveness of only 62% you know, compared to Pfizer Moderna's 95%. And, um, and and a second thing they should point out, because you mentioned at the beginning of the show, variants. So this, this, this interfaces here with this issue. So the other thing is, how effective will these be against uh, the variants that are emerging? And indeed, like I mentioned, with the influenza virus, the issue from year to year, and the reason why we need a new vaccine each year is because the influenza virus develops new variants each year. And the SARS coronavirus 2 that causes COVID-19 also is prone to mutating regularly. And indeed, we have now seen uh, a bunch of variants come out. Uh, the, the first one that was really well studied came out of mink, you may recall. It was mm-hmm. a, a mink-derived variant. Uh, now we have the, the UK variant uh, that developed in the human population. We also have, have the South African variant. We have a Brazilian variant. And, uh, and this, this is, will not be the end because this virus will continue to mutate. We will probably have more variants uh, appear in the future. Uh, the good news is it, it, this virus doesn't tend to mutate as quickly as the influenza virus. So we may not have to uh, change the, the nature of our vaccines as often as we do for the influenza virus. But this probably will become endemic like the influenza virus, meaning it's something that we will have to learn to live with. We will not get rid of this virus. We will have to deal with new versions of the virus coming up, you know, maybe every instead of maybe annually like the, the, the flu. It might be every two or three or four years, for example, that we might need a new vaccine against it. And so the issue with the effectiveness, again, is uh, interesting. This AstraZeneca vaccine that was just approved failed in a phase three clinical trial in South Africa against the South African variant of the virus. So this is important because not only is it on paper have lower effectiveness than the Pfizer Moderna vaccines, but it also performed very poorly against one of the known variants. So much so that the South African government would not approve the use of the vaccine. And in fact, they remarkably gave away all of their doses of the vaccine. And, um, and so a concern that I have personally, David, uh, you know, for your listeners is we've, we, we in Canada approved this AstraZeneca vaccine, but again, it, it, tend, it looks like it has lower effectiveness against all of the variants outside of the South African one, and then very poor effectiveness against the South African variant. And we know the South African variant is now in Canada and circulating in Canada. So I think we have to be very cautious. I was quite surprised, in fact, that, uh, that we approved the, the use of that vaccine in Canada. And, one, and this creates an issue because we're being told that um, P- Canadians are likely, prob- likely will not have a choice in terms of what vaccine they can take because doses mm-hmm. are so limited uh, mm-hmm. that they'll have to take whatever arrives in their area. But people should be aware, you know, I just as a scientist uh, and a public servant, I think it's important that people be aware of some of this information. And in fact, there's an article just about to be published because another thing you'll hear in the media is that, well, maybe the AstraZeneca vaccine appears to be less effective because it's been tested under harsher conditions with with higher case rates of COVID-19, more variants circulating. Uh, but there's actually a paper about to be published in a top scientific journal called Cell 
that did a head-to-head comparison between the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines. And indeed, it, it confirmed in a head-to-head comparison that the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine was lower than the Pfizer vaccine. So personally, uh, I'm not the one making decisions about whether people do or do not have a choice with the vaccines. But personally, uh, with that knowledge, I would prefer the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine if I had a choice among the three. Mm-hmm. With the variants and with mutations that are happening, as you just pointed out, is there a, is there a similarity here between what happened with the Spanish flu 100 years ago in terms of how it mutated and, and changed and then eventually fizzled out? Are, are we looking at something different or do you think that might be a similar? Uh, yeah, the, the, these variants, uh, David, you've hit on, I think, the, the key point here and, and the key problem. And I, and I think this is going to... These variants are going to have to derive a fundamental change in, in our approach to dealing with COVID-19. Uh, and what I mean by that is, like I said, these variants are going to, going to continue. This, uh, this virus, I can quickly explain uh, um, the, the, the biology, very, just a very uh, sort of superficial overview. The virus is designed to replicate in, in an error-prone fashion. This is something the virus does. So it, so it incorporates randomly mutations into its genetic code. And this allows the virus to adapt to environmental pressures, right? Um, so that if, if its ch- environment changes, there's the chance of, of mute, mutated versions of the virus uh, being produced that can survive better in that new environment. So this is going to continue to happen. This virus does this uh, naturally. And what's going to happen is, you know, and we've already seen the variants coming out now. What's going to happen is if you ask me as a scientist, I, I conduct um, research studies all the time. And one of the things I'm, I'm uh, to do uh, that I'm supposed to do in my job is try and design the best ways to optimize a certain outcome. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I, I, I develop vaccines, I develop immunotherapies to treat cancers and infectious diseases. So I'm always trying to find the best way to accomplish that outcome. If you were to ask me right now, what would I do as a researcher to maximize the chance of getting a, a making a variant of this virus that can evade all of our vaccines? Um, it would be exactly how we're rolling out these vaccines. And it would be, I, I would design the vaccines exactly as they currently are. And what I mean by that is the vaccines that we, that we have are rolling out right now confer very narrowly focused immunity, right? They're all targeting one and only one protein on the virus. It's called the spike protein. And the reason is this is the, the spike protein is what the virus uses to attach to our cells and infect our bodies. So, so from that perspective, it initially made sense. However, um, knowing that this virus is prone to mutation, if you think about it, um, it it's going to be much easier for the virus to change one protein than it would be to change multiple components. It would be very difficult for a virus to, comp- to change multiple components and still maintain its own fitness. Um, but So that's what we're seeing. All these mutants that are coming out, uh, they have changes in their spike protein. And we already have evidence, as I just mentioned, uh, that the South African variant already has, has largely been able to bypass the protection conferred by the AstraZeneca vaccine. So my concern now, oh, and the other thing that I would do if I wanted to maximize the probability of a, of a potentially dangerous uh, variant coming out is I would distribute the vaccines in a piecemeal fashion, a, a few thousand in one part of Canada, a few thousand in another part, a few thousand in another province or territory. And I would do this rollout very slowly. I would do it over a prolonged period of time, like months. And then what happens is 
under these conditions, you have people who are not vaccinated uh, intermingling with people who are vaccinated and the unvaccinated people can serve as what we call a reservoir population, right? A population in which the virus can freely spread. And, and over time, there are going to be mutations that just naturally occur while circulating among that population. And since those people are in relatively close proximity to vaccinated individuals, the virus can keep testing its ability to infect those vaccinated people. It's obviously not going to be able to infect uh, and replicate in those vaccinated people unless it has acquired a mutation that allows it to bypass that immunity. So what we've done is we've essentially set up on a, on a global scale an experiment that will, would maximize the chance of variants coming out that will be able to get around or bypass the, the immunity conferred by all our current vaccines. And you could imagine that the potential disaster that could be um, because if our vaccines uh, lose the protection against these new variants, we're, we're going to start all over again, right, with, with the virus recircling through the population. So this is where it's important, David. I think um, the vaccines can help us for sure uh, get to where we need to be. But since there's a high probability of variants emerging, we're going to need to learn to live with this virus just like we do with the flu virus on an annual basis, right, where we develop vaccines, um, to try and deal with new and emerging variants, but we cannot main stay in a lockdown mindset for years to come as we continue to deal with n- new emerging variants. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also listen on our SoundCloud. And if you do listen on our SoundCloud, to uh, please like us there. Also, we'd like to welcome other listeners from other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth. Uh, we welcome you to the show as well. And we also welcome our guest to the show. I'm talking with Dr. Byram Bridal, and he is an associate professor and viral immunologist in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. And we're talking to him about an article he authored in the conversation entitled Five Factors That Could Dictate the Success or Failure of the COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout. Something very timely as we get into the potentially third wave that we're dealing with and looking at vaccines as they roll out across the country. You said so many things there that we could we could uh, talk about. Uh, I guess, as you say, the world is, is somewhat in this experiment that we've all uh, been thrown into because of COVID-19. There's so many other things for us to talk about. For instance, the vaccines themselves, as you say, they're very pointed towards one protein. And, and so if this vaccine mutates, it can fi- potentially find its way around that. The vaccines themselves, though, as they are rolling out, I would imagine, are they looking now at these variants? Are they trying to come up with new, new improved vaccines as we're, as we're talking? Uh, yeah, so, so um, in fact, it's interesting, David, our national uh, funding agency known as the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, which funds health research in Canada, has, has just announced uh, a brand new competition um, to, to, for people to get funding specifically to try and deal with these variants. Um, and there's about $118 million the, the federal government has invested into this. And the sole purpose is to try and develop more effective strategies to deal with the current and um, emerging variants in the future. And, and I mean, yeah, there's, there's a, 
some obvious uh, so, you know, potential solutions to this. So the first one is, as I mentioned, the current vaccines target only a single protein. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's very intuitive. If, if it's going to be more difficult for an organism to alter multiple components um, and, and still maintain fitness as an organism than if it only has to change one single protein. And so one of the obvious uh, uh, solutions a- in terms of the next generation vaccines that are being developed is to incorporate more targets from the from the virus. So in other words, I think what we're going to see in the future is we're going to see uh, vaccines, instead of targeting one protein, they're going to be targeting two or three proteins. And that's going to be make, make it much more difficult for the virus to evade that much broader immunity and, uh, and those would be more, quotes universal type um, vaccines against COVID-19. Uh, and the, the other possibility is with the current technologies, like vaccine technologies that are approved, uh, th- this wouldn't be as ideal an ideal solution, but um, the current vaccines could be re-engineered with the new spike proteins from any uh, variants that would emerge in the future. To me, that's the second best approach. Uh, the best approach would, like I said, be to really broaden the immunity against these viruses. So, yeah, there's a lot of work and a lot of effort going into this because, as you can imagine, uh, this is a major concern. Like I said, we, we can't, if, if these variants come up that, that continue to be able to evade um, all the vaccines that we have available, you know, the, we can't keep going like we have for the last year. Our economy and, and the mental health of Canadians simply mm. cannot afford to stay in a lockdown state for uh, much longer. The the technology used for developing these vaccines, it, it, I believe, is it RNA? Is that what I, re- I know? It's RNA something. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, what yeah it you're is. right. RNA. Uh, so, so there's so there's actually multiple technologies. So the first two to make it to the market were the Pfizer Moderna vaccines, and, and yes, they're based on a technology that we call messenger RNA. So messenger RNA is it's a piece of genetic material uh, that our bodies would normally use. So what happens is, you know, we're, we're familiar with our with having DNA in our, in our cells. All mm. of our cells have DNA. That's a genetic code for for our bodies and, and tells our cells how to how to develop and how to function, et cetera. And what's interesting is the messenger RNA. What it is, is it's a, it when our DNA can be copied into what's called messenger RNA. That messenger RNA is then used in a cell to make a protein. And so these messenger RNA vaccines actually, based on what we've already talked about now, your listeners can understand probably how this messenger RNA vaccine works. The messenger RNA encodes the spike protein from the virus. So when these vaccines get administered to people, this messenger RNA goes into their cells and it gets converted uh, using the machinery in their own cells into the spike protein of the virus. So that's why these these are safe. It's not the virus itself. It's just a piece of the virus, um, that one protein. And when it gets manufactured by the cells in a person's body, that can be seen by the immune system. So that's how that one works. The AstraZeneca vaccine is a completely different technology. The AstraZeneca vaccine actually takes a a very weak cold virus, a virus that that, um, uh, has traditionally been associated with a common cold. It's known as an adenovirus. But this is one, a, a version of the cold-causing virus that's so weak that in and of itself, it doesn't even cause a cold, doesn't cause any disease. Um, and it, this is called a virus-vectored vaccine. So it's actually using a, uh, a safe virus as a Trojan horse. So what this AstraZeneca vaccine does is the virus itself 
it, its genetic material encodes the spike protein for the SARS coronavirus. And so when this virus gets administered to the body, the body sees that virus as something that's dangerous and that virus will manufacture the spike protein. And since it's in this dangerous context, our immune system will recognize the, the spike protein from SARS coronavirus 2 in a dangerous context and therefore it will respond vigorously against it. Hmm. Now, in terms of the next generation vaccines, when might we see those? How soon might that be able to be even incorporated into the current vaccines? Uh, well, with the current vaccine, it, so it could be done. Well, so in fact, it's interesting. I, I was just on a meeting with an organization yesterday um, that deals with uh, pandemic preparedness uh, internationally. And uh, in that discussion, it was highlighted that these messenger RNA vaccines now could be re-engineered and uh, ready for um, testing in people in uh, likely eight months and maybe even less now because of the mm. experience that we've had. Um, but still, eight months is probably not what people are wanting to hear. Uh, on the more positive side, um, there, there are a huge number of vaccines that have been undergoing development since the beginning of the pandemic, right? So when mm. the ones that are being approved right now, they're the tip of the iceberg, but there's right. many more behind the scenes that are uh, either in clinical trials or about to, about to enter human clinical trials. And for a lot of those, they, they would be considered the next generation vaccines. So that, you know, there's, there are many other research groups uh, that understood the, the fundamental biology of this virus, knew that it could mutate, um, and knew that it was prone to mutation, knew that there would be variants that would probably emerge in the future, and so had the foresight to incorporate multiple targets into their um, vaccines. So uh, those might be the ones that make it to people faster mm. because they're already in the pipeline. Right. Time for a break here on Moment of Truth. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more with our guest immunologist, Dr. Byram Bridal. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to an encore presentation of Moment of Truth. My guest on the show today is Dr. Byram Bridal. Do you have any sense of... The herd immunity that we're looking at, how many people may have been exposed that are asymptomatic at this point in time, either across the country, or around the world? Do we have any information about how close we are to getting there? Uh, so this is a great question, David. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's a, it's, a, it's a hot topic and one it's a very sensitive topic in, in Canada right now. In Canada, we've actually generally done a very poor job of tracking the development of uh, naturally acquired immunity. So that would be with people who were infected with the virus and cleared the virus and developed immunity against it. Um, the, way, the way that that testing would be done, it would be with what's called an antibody test. So what we do is we look for evidence of people having antibodies in circulation against the, the virus. The only way you can have antibodies in circulation against this virus is if you were infected with the virus. And, and, and indeed, what we do know from worldwide studies is there are a lot of people that have been infected with this virus. So they, they have developed antibodies and they never even knew they were infected because, as you mentioned, mm. they, they didn't experience disease. So for these mm. people, in fact, arguably, this is not even a pathogen. It's not any, even anything that's dangerous mm. for them. Mm. Um, but we have done a poor job of tracking this in Canada. We haven't done uh, much antibody testing. Now, what's, in, now, what's interesting then, David is one study was done, and this keeps getting cited over and over and over again in Canada. 
So the, the government did fund a study that was done with blood donors. And the idea being, okay, so here's a source uh, of readily available blood. Let's see how, how many of these blood samples, right, that have been given by, by blood donors, uh, how many of them have antibodies against the virus? Now, according to that study, the, the data was published back in November. So that alone means that, you know, now it would underestimate the, the amount of immunity that some in Canadi- that with Canadians have. But it, it estimated it was only 2%. Only 2% of Canadians had evidence of immunity. But there's two important things here. First of all, that study was highly flawed in the sense that it studied blood donors. And if anybody has donated blood, they will know that blood donors are extensively screened. These are very healthy individuals who have not been sick in you know the weeks prior to donating blood. Uh, they have a very high health status. These are not the people that are at particular risk of, of becoming infected with the virus. Further, it completely excludes anybody under the age of 17, because you have to be at least 17 in order to donate blood. And the people in which the virus has been circulating naturally by far the most is our, our school-age children, right? Because they've been back in school uh, for, mm-hmm. for lar- long mm-hmm. periods of time with the in-class learning. Um, and so what's, and the other thing, David, is the test that was used for that, again, look for antibodies against the spike protein we've been talking about. And that tends to be uh, a poor test to, to look at antibodies. Now, what I want to point out, this is because this is a very important point, is there's a uh, researcher at the University of British Columbia. His name is Dr. Stephen Pellick. And uh, he has talked very openly. In fact, he's somebody I would recommend you interview on your show. So he has developed an incredibly sensitive, to the best of my knowledge, it's the most sensitive test to uh, detect antibodies in people against the, the SARS coronavirus 2. He has uh, used this test to randomly uh, evaluate adults in British Columbia, and his data estimates that in British Columbia, as many as 50% of the adults there may already uh, have evidence of, of some level of immunity against the virus. They have antibodies circulating against the SARS coronavirus 2. Now, it's interesting, and he believes in that as well that, that that percentage would be higher in the children because, of, again, of being, mm. being back to school. Now, this is interesting because he, British Columbia, probably has a higher level of immunity than the rest of Canada because it's kind of generally agreed it was probably ground zero. Uh, because in the, in the southwest portion, in the Vancouver area, there are a lot of um, Chinese business uh, people. Who, who simultaneously have businesses both in China and in mm. the greater Vancouver area. And so it's thought that there was a lot of travel back and forth, right, when, while the pandemic was, uh, was, being, was developing. Right. And so it may have been ground zero. So they may have the highest level of, of immunity in Canada, but still the 50% is way above the 2% that this other flood sure. study estimated. And the reason why this is important, David, is because we get back to the, what you talked about. If we need to get to at least 60% immunity, if 50% of, of uh, people in British Columbia are, are already immune, right, then we don't actually have to get that much further with the vaccines. That's really, really good news. Mm. So we really need to fully focus on this aspect, which may be an underappreciated aspect, right? We may be much closer to herd immunity than we appreciate right now. And uh, the reason why this is important is the epidemiological models that are being used to uh, dictate COVID-19 policies 
they have plugged into the models this data that I mentioned to you from the study that suggests that the, pre, that the naturally acquired immunity is negligible, maybe in the ballpark of 2%. In other words, it's not helping us get to herd immunity. But then we see in British Columbia this data that suggests that maybe 50% of them have that. Now, you can imagine, David, if you plugged into the epidemiological model a percent of immunity that's much higher than 2%, the outlook would be much brighter, right? right and right. in fact, if you look now, historically, we've had two waves of the pandemic in Canada, and both times the epidemiological models that were generated vastly overestimated the problem. So in my professional opinion, I do believe that the government is vastly underestimating the current level of immunity among Canadians, and we might be in much mm. better shape than we than. Um, than, than we're publicly being told. Mm. And and so is there something happening now in terms of uh, being able to track that information? Is there, Are they looking to do that now or starting to? <laughs> well, to a limited degree. So, okay. so one of the, the things that the federal government is doing, which is great, and it's a great start, is that the, they're, through the Public Health Agency of Canada, although it was not, it was not widely publicized, they, they, they're doing a, um, a program where they're, randomly mailing test kits to, to to Canadians. So this is good because it, it corrects the flaw in the original study with the blood donors in the sense that it's being sent randomly to Canadians. So they're going to be capturing, in theory, data from Canadians of all walks of life and of all health statuses. Um, and what it is, it's a, a package and, and individuals, when they get the package, can do a finger prick, uh, which will provide a few drops of blood and they collect these few drops of blood and send it to the Public Health Agency of Canada, and they'll look for evidence of antibodies against the virus. So, so this is a good thing. There's also a, um, a study being done by a researcher at the University of Toronto who, who's also uh, looking at this, and that they have one of those, I guess, larger-scale studies going on. And um, what's interesting, some people have been receiving these mail packages and, and didn't realize, had no clue this was even being done. And, of course, uh, wondering if it's even valid. You can imagine you'd be mm. a little shocked if you suddenly get a, right. a package, you know, uh, telling you to, to to stick a lancet into your finger and, and right. uh, you know, get, get, get blood samples and so on. So, but um, we'll see how that does. But but the reality is, when you think about David, one of the, one of the issues that I've had is we have thousands and thousands of people every day going to be tested for COVID-19. And the, the test that's being done is the swab. It gets stuck up the nose. It goes mm-hmm. uh, right through the nasal passages and down into the back of the throat. And right. what this does is the goal is to, if the person is actively infected with the virus, uh, it's hoped that the swab will pick up the virus. And then they use a test that directly detects the virus, the presence of the virus. But like I said, what we're talking about here is immunity to the virus, which is a different test. I would have liked it if we had incorporated these antibody tests at our test centers. Then in Canada, we could have been leaders and we could have had a massive data set. Uh, We'd know exactly who is and who is not infected and at the same time know who has been or has not generated immunity, right? And we would know whether people who are infected then generate effective immunity. We would know if those people have generated immunity are prone to reinfection. We've done a very poor job of tracking this in Canada. Hmm. What would you recommend to people in in terms of going forward on a personal level? Well, for, for me personally, David, so, so one of the things I want to point out, because I think this is some, some good news in the context of the variants as well that we were talking about. If somebody has been naturally infected, 
um, our immune systems will naturally respond to all the components of the virus, right? So a person who is naturally infected will not have this very narrow immunity focused just on the, that, the single spike protein. So people who are naturally infected might actually uh, be, in theory, more resistant to some of these mutants that come out because, again, mm. they'll have a much broader immune response. Right. Um, so one of the things I personally would, would appreciate is if the government would make readily available uh, antibody tests so people can figure out whether or not they have any level of pre-existing immunity. Also, David, to me, it makes sense from the perspective of uh the fact that we have such limited vaccine doses, right? We're hearing about this all the time. We don't have enough vaccine doses uh, to get people vaccinated quickly enough. It's going to take right. until at least, you know, September is, is, mm -hmm. is still the goal. Um, so to me, a logical thing would be when we, when we have to pick and choose who can be vaccinated, why not do these tests? If some, you know, so this is just common sense. So if you think about it, if you test two individuals, and one has antibodies against the virus, so they have evidence of at least some level of protection against the virus, and the other individual has no evidence whatsoever, to me, it would be very obvious then, with a limited number of doses, that you would vaccinate the person with no evidence of protection whatsoever. That is going to accelerate our progress towards herd immunity, much more than just randomly administering the vaccines to people who are both immune and not immune to the virus. Okay. And those people that are currently now immune or, or have been naturally immune towards and been exposed to the, to the virus, is there a way of using their blood somehow to help others to, to generate some kind of a vaccine from that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, so there, are, there are many researchers who have been doing that right from the beginning of the pandemic. So they, they looked at people who cleared the virus and, in fact, there's been a lot of researchers um, collecting these antibodies, figuring out which ones. And then what they would do is they would take these antibodies from people that had naturally cleared the virus. And then figure, they would figure out which ones were the most protective, which ones most potently mm. neutralized mm. the virus. So by, what I mean by that is these anti, some, of, some of the antibodies can bind to the virus. And then these are large proteins that these antibodies are large protein structures, so large that some of them can block the virus. Uh, it prevents it from attaching to cells mm. in our body and therefore the virus cannot infect. So we call these neutralizing antibodies. And yes, researchers have been working on this and, uh, and then trying to identify these antibodies and then developing uh, antibody cocktails. So mm. uh, combining these antibodies that they've got from uh, from people that have proven to be quite protective. And then, yes, they can administer them. And in fact, uh, so a very famous um, example of that was uh, um, Donald Trump, right, in the United States. Right. You might recall that when he had his COVID-19, he received a an experimental concoction yes. of these antibodies. That's right. And, uh, and so there's many people working on that. So, yes, that, that is uh, definitely an insightful potential alternative solution. Wow, um, so many so many things to consider and and uh, to look at as we work our way through this pandemic. Yeah, I've got I've got another issue. Uh, do you mind if I bring it up? Because uh, I yeah, think it's please. important for your listeners. Sure. Yeah. So so uh, one of the things. So again, I, I really appreciate because you're right. This is a very complex uh, area, and at the core, at, at its core, COVID nineteen is is really. Uh, a problem at the interface of immunology and virology. 
uh, both in the terms of, of the, uh, how the disease progresses and the solutions we're seeking, right, which is, which is uh, immunity among Canadians. Um, and, uh, and so there are many questions. And so I really appreciate, you know, you, you, you having shows like this to try and provide some, some uh, basic scientific advice to your listeners. Now, th- this, so this is a very important one. We're talking about the vaccines is, and I feel very passionate about this. There are a lot of efforts to change the protocols for these um, vaccines. So, you know, it's proven to be exceptionally difficult for governments to efficiently roll out two-dose vaccines. Um, And so what's been happening is there have been considerations given to only administering a single dose. There have been Mm. considerations given to dramatically lengthening the interval between doses. Yeah. Um, we have even so in Canada, we've approved, for example, taking five dose vials and uh, and pulling six doses out of them. From that perspective, I'll tell you. So personally, if I was lined up for a, for a dose, I, I wouldn't want to be the, the sixth person in line for that vial, um, by mm-hmm. the way, because I'm not sure that 100 percent of the time that, that individual will get the full dose. Um, mm-hmm. But regardless, the point is that a lot of consideration of changing these protocols and I, I think it, 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 we, we need to be very clear on this. Um, these are approved. These vaccines are approved for emergency use only, which means essentially this public rollout is, is an extension of the grand experiment. It's an extension of the phase three clinical study, uh, in essence. Um, and we shouldn't be further changing these protocols. If we change these protocols in any way other than how they were approved, there can be no guarantee of either the effectiveness that was advertised uh, nor nor safety, right? Because um, it was it was approved to be effective and safe based on the precise way that it was used during the phase three trials. And that's the way it should be administered to people. Uh, I think people really need to insist on this. Um, otherwise, they are getting involved in essentially uncontrolled experiments, you know, being performed by physicians. Uh, and, and, and another thing that I have to point out is there's talk of administering these vaccines to, um, for example, women who are pregnant, to mm. um, uh, children under the age of 17, uh, and people who have autoimmune conditions. And it's very important to note that th- these are not situations in which these vaccines have been tested thoroughly yet. And, uh, and I have concern about uh, using the vaccines in these ways until they have gone until the companies have gone back and done the proper clinical testing and confirmed that they're safe and effective in these other uh, subpopulations. Right. You know, we're going to have to wrap up and I appreciate you taking your time to uh, share your, your concerns as well as your information on this. Uh, the, the, as you were talking throughout this whole thing, I, there's, there's a fascination that keeps coming back to me about the virus itself and just how amazing it is able to adapt and change and almost outwit our ability to try and, and uh, you know, circumvent it and, and win over it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's why, David, I think, you know, we, we have to find a way out of these lockdowns. So as you can see, the vaccines may or may not be the solution. Um, regardless of that, we've been dealing with this this virus for a year from now, or for over a year now, and mm. are probably do do have a substantial amount of the population that's naturally immune. Um, for the exact reason that you just cited, we need to start getting out of these lockdowns. We need to learn learn to live with this virus, uh, just like we do with the flu virus. So what you just described sounds exactly like the flu virus, right? Um, mm. 
and we learn live with that on an annual basis. We don't go into lockdown every right. flu season. Um, yes. Although what we've seen is is with this lockdown, guess what? The the, the cases of the flu have gone down quite dramatically. Yes, and one thing I want to point out, David, is when it comes to a comparison between COVID-19 or the SARS coronavirus 2 that causes COVID-19 and the influenza yep. virus, the annual flu is actually more dangerous to our children that are in school. We don't have a lot of mm. Canadian youth that die each year from the, the annual yeah. flu, but there's a few that do die yeah. and essentially none die from the SARS coronavirus 2. So one could argue yeah. the flu is actually more dangerous for our youth than this is, yet mm. we don't go into a lockdown every single year during the flu season to save those few young Canadians, right? Um, it, it's just, you know, it's it's some harsh cost-benefit analysis that we do, right, yeah. as a society. And um, as, as a consequence, we need to start viewing this in the same way. The, look, for exactly what you said, this virus is going to become endemic. It means it's going to be something that we are going to have to live with long-term, and we need to start dealing with that now. And, and the long-term solution is not lockdowns. And well, in terms of the flu that we get every year versus the coronavirus that we're dealing with, do you know what the numbers are compared to that just in the general population, how it's shaping up? I know we, we talked about that and I heard some things about that in, in the early stages of COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, for some demographics, SARS coronavirus 2 is extremely dangerous, right? And we, mm-hmm. we know exactly uh, who these individuals are, the very elderly. Uh, are are at a substantial risk from SARS coronavirus 2. People who are immunocompromised, which of course makes sense because their immune system isn't functioning properly. Um, And and there's some other uh, situations where people have uh, multiple uh, pre-existing health conditions that can predispose them. But for the vast majority of people, the reality is, this this has been a, a, a pet peeve of mine since the very beginning of the pandemic. Again, we've done a poor job. If we report, you see, people are equating uh, the most mild cases of, of COVID-19 with the lethal ones, the, the cases mm. that result in death. And of course, they're not equal. But all we're doing is we're reporting cases, cases, cases. And so everybody is, but this, this is, in my opinion, uh, and at, at its core, a lot of fear mongering. If we actually defined the nature of those cases, what we would find is the vast majority are actually mild. And as you mentioned, remarkably, a lot of people uh, have had asymptomatic uh, cases mm-hmm. where they have been infected and but didn't develop any disease. Um, and so this, so I guess to, to cut to the chase, to answer your question, for the vast majority of Canadians, if they were to be infected with this virus, at most they would get uh, moderate disease. That's the reality. Um, right. But for a small percentage of Canadians, it can be very dangerous. But we we know who these people are. That's why I'm starting to really promote the fact that we've got to start. uh, We've got to work our way out of these lockdowns. And we have to get the vast majority of people for whom this is not a particularly dangerous virus back to work and back to school, to get our economy functioning. And that will free up a lot of financial uh, and human resources to focus the protection on the people Mm. who really need it. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, uh, Byron, but what a pleasure to speak with you. I thank you so much for your time, and also, uh, let's uh, hopefully touch base in the next couple of months to see how things are going, if that sounds good to you. I would be happy to do so. All right, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. 
It was my pleasure. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Byron Bridal. He's an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. We were talking to him about his article that he authored in the conversation entitled Five Factors That Could Dictate the Success or Failure of the COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout. You can find that on the conversation. Don't go away. We have part of a new interview we just did with Dr. Byron Bridal coming right up. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for joining us here on Element FM. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show, Dr. Byron Bridal. Now, you just heard our previous interview, and now Dr. Byron Bridal is back on the show with an update. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Byron Bridal back to the show. And as mentioned before, Dr. Byron Bridal is an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. So, Dr. Byron Byron Bridal, welcome back to the show. Yes, hi David, thanks for having me. You bet. Now, since we last spoke, uh, you have been very busy because uh, you've sent out several emails to me and I know other media outlets regarding the situation around the COVID-19 vaccines specifically. You're very concerned uh, with the vaccines themselves, uh, how they're rolling out in terms of the time length is one of the concerns you're talking about between the first and second uh, shot that people are getting. That's one of the things. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. Uh, And this is an interesting situation. And and this is why I, uh, I, I feel very compelled to speak up because uh, it, it's it's certainly a noble goal, uh, you know, trying to get as many people uh, immune to this to the SARS coronavirus to as quickly as possible. And uh, you're right. And so this is leading public health officials to uh, seriously consider using the vaccines in ways in which they were not originally approved. And um and one of the issues here and sort of the, the, the messaging that the public has been receiving is that we're, we're always dealing in the realm of positivity here in terms of potential outcomes, meaning that, for example, the, the assumption is that if you le- dramatically lengthen the interval between the two dose COVID-19 vaccine regimens, for example, right, that if we lengthen that, that we're merely taking, you know, the, the level of immunity from excellent and maybe dampening it to good. Right. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we're, the, the outcomes are, are, are always going to be somewhat positive. But this is not true. Um, there, there are scientific reasons to suggest that doing this might actually have the potential for negative consequences. And if that's true, that really changes our interpretations of some of these policies. And I think it's important, David, just to step back for a moment for your listeners to just establish just a, a, a framework here mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of this discussion. So it, it needs to be pointed out that the, the COVID-19 vaccines that we're working with um, have not been licensed. It's interesting. You and I chatted uh, months ago about the timeline for the development of these vaccines. Yes. And at, at the time, many scientists pointed out that the, uh, the typical uh, timeline to develop these vaccines and get them approved takes at least several years. Mm-hmm. And, and so many people were surprised when, when these vaccines were approved in, in less than a year. But what we have to point out here, what's important to note is these vaccines have not been licensed for routine use. Right. Uh, they're still a long way from that. The, the comments that we talked about months ago uh, about these vaccines taking years still holds true. These COVID-19 vaccines we're working with right now uh, will not be able to apply for 
becoming fully licensed for routine, meaning non-emergency use, for another about two to two and a half years. And that is because one of the requirements for that full licensure is uh, long-term safety data, acquisition of long-term safety data. So Health Canada will tell you and the companies will tell you that they are going to continue to collect data for the next two and a half years. Then the companies would be in a position to put together a package, a data package that they could submit to Health Canada for these vaccines to be considered for full licensing. I would argue that some of the vaccines we're using right now almost certainly will not be licensed uh, by Health Canada in the future. So we have to remember, first of all, that these vaccines have only been approved. They haven't been licensed. They've been approved for emergency use only in the context of this pandemic. And that basically uh, clears the, the companies and Health Canada of liability. And so, so the use of these vaccines already is quite experimental. Essentially, the public rollout is an extension of the phase three clinical trial work. Um, and when we talk about phase three clinical trials, by trial, we mean an experiment, right? So it's an extension of the phase three clinical experiments. And, and so it is in large, in many ways, already uh, an experimental use of these vaccines. And now my concern, David, is they've been approved in a very specific way based on the way that they were tested in the phase three clinical trials. And uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, that means giving two doses three weeks apart. And for the Moderna vaccine, it means giving the two doses four weeks apart. That's how they were tested. That's how they were approved. It's the only way that the companies and Health Canada uh, have, have approved these. It's the only, it's, those are the only protocols that they have approved and the only ones that they can promote. So public health officials and public health agencies have been overriding these uh, and, and starting to change these protocols. As scientists, we're, we're quite concerned. I'm concerned as a viral immunologist who has a deep understanding of both the virology and the immunology, uh, and, and, and just simply as a scientist who, who's worked uh, throughout my career on developing vaccines, that we have a certain scientific process in place. Uh, as scientists, we can never recommend changes. I can never recommend changes to a scientifically approved protocol unless we have empirical data to back that up. And what I mean by that is, most scientists would have no problem with changes in how we're administering these vaccines if the companies have gone back and, and they are doing this to, to look for uh, officially being able to recommend changes in protocols, right? Uh, they have to go back and run a new phase three clinical trial with a new version of the protocol to demonstrate that it is safe and effective. And then that data would get submitted to Health Canada. And if they're happy with it, they would approve that new protocol, the new version of the protocol. This system we have in place to protect the health of Canadians, to ensure that we are not experimenting uh, on Canadians. And the reality is the way we're starting to measure these vaccines. And, and the one thing I really want to uh, focus on are these this extension to these four-month intervals. Nowhere else in the world has this been done. Nowhere else in the world mm. has this been tested. Mm. And we are now under great scrutiny by the international scientific community uh, who's asking us in Canada to show them the evidence for this change. Mm. Uh, because, hey, they would like to be able to stretch the use of their vaccines right. and get more people immune faster, um, but they are not willing to do it without having scientific data. And so they're saying they have not seen it published and they're asking, asking Canada 
and other countries that are implementing these long intervals, where is your published data? We want to see it because we want to be able to give legitimate consideration to doing this within our own countries. Right. Yes. Um, I just want to point out also, uh, uh, Dr. Bridal, that you are, as you pointed out, an immunologist, but you and also another uh, doctor from uh, the University of Guelph, uh, Dr. Sarah Wooten, uh, virologist, you have both been re- received funding from the federal and provincial governments to develop and work on vaccines for COVID-19. Um, so uh, this is your area of expertise. That's right. Yes. Yes. So so I do know a lot about the vaccine development. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have on the show today for our conversation with Dr. Byron Bridal. But rest assured, we're going to have much more of this conversation coming up with Dr. Byron Bridal next week. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Element FM and Moment of Truth. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.